John chapter 13. We finished up chapter 12 last week, so we're going 13 verse 1. Let's dive right in. It says, John 13 verse 1, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, normally the Passover festival is a time for celebration culturally. But because Jesus knows that his time on earth is coming to an end, as we started to observe last week, the atmosphere is a little different. The scene uh, is not quite celebratory. Uh, much like our holiday season that we're entering into would sort of be how they would see the time that we're in. And yet because of that, because of what Jesus knows is on the horizon, uh, he has a different attitude. He has a different posture. We learned last week that Jesus' earthly ministry was shifting from uh, time in the public's eye to a more intimate setting with some of those closest to him. In John 12, 23, we see a similar language to the one in verse 1 here in 13, where it says that the hour had come for him to leave this world. We saw him say in 12, 23 uh, to his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So the second time, basically, in two chapters that Jesus is referencing this idea that the hour has come. And this isn't the first time that he's used this language. In fact, we go back to John 2, which we, were, uh, we referenced last week as well, the wedding at Cana. and says this. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother Mary was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine, which is a big problem uh, for them. And he says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do what he tells you. Now this, a lot, of hap- a lot happens, right? Like we talked about this last week. Woman, why have you involved me in this? Like basically like, what are you doing, mom? Why are you doing this to me? And, uh, and, sh- and she ignores him, as every good mother would, ignore their children and do what she believes is right. And she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. This moment signals to me that Jesus was fully aware that once his earthly ministry started, it was going to be a nonstop uphill battle, which, of course, in the remaining chapters after that, we see that that is indeed the case. But it was also going to mark the end of any normal life that Jesus was able to live in the time before that, right? So basically, he's saying, my hour hasn't come yet. Let me live in peace. But of course, she forces the issue, and he turns water into wine, and it's really a beautiful scene. But before we move on from that story of the wedding in Cana, I would would like you to just observe not only Jesus' language about the hour coming, but also what Mary says in response to that. Like I said, she ignores him, and she says, basically, do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. And let me just, let me just take that for a moment and say to you, do whatever Jesus says. Do whatever Jesus says. Please, 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 please do whatever Jesus says. It will only lead to a new and better reality for you than your current one. Do what Jesus says. Nevertheless, Jesus had only one more week on earth. Fast forward to where we are now. And he knew that his time was drawing 
close to an end on earth, and so we can assume that he's going to say only the most important things, and that he's going to spend that time with the people who he really wanted to leave his legacy with. He was focused on planting that legacy in the hearts and the minds of those men who had been following him around for three, three-ish years, giving them everything, giving Jesus everything they had, which honestly wasn't much. Um, but he wanted, to, he wanted to pour into them and give them the legacy, the, the, the teaching and the encouragement to have the legacy that he intended for them. And so I ask you, have you ever thought about your legacy? I hope you have. I'm sure you have. But have you ever considered the idea that until your last day alive, you can change your story? That you can reauthor the story of your life? including whether or not you will submit to Jesus, whether you will indeed follow Jesus. Giving your life to Jesus is the most important decision that you will ever make. And the good news is if you're here breathing today and you haven't, it's not too late. It's not too late. Jesus determined what eternity looks like for those who submit to him. We choose whether or not we submit to him, right? We choose whether or not we submit to him. And your legacy will look dramatically different depending on whether or not you submit and follow Jesus. So here's a hint. Choosing Jesus is the better option in every situation. Like Mary says, do what Jesus says. Follow him. And in regards to Jesus' legacy, Matthew Henry says this about um, about the, the, the verse saying that Jesus, it says that he loved his people to the very end, right? He stuck with his people. This is encouraging for all of us, and I'll tell you why in just a second, but I want to read you his thought. It'll be on the screen as well. It says, though there were some persons of quality that espoused his cause, basically meaning there were people that actually carried some significant weight socially and maybe even monetarily who were like getting on board with Jesus. But he did not lay aside his old friends to make room for the new ones, but he still stuck to his poor fishermen. They were weak and defective in knowledge and grace, dull and forgetful, and yet, though he reproved them often, he never ceased to love them and take care of them. I love that because I am often weak, defective in knowledge and grace, dull and forgetful, and yet he approves of me and the same goes for you. That's why that's beautiful. That's why Jesus stuck by his people and he will continue to stick by you. For those of us who have given our lives to Jesus fully, some of you, well, most of you in here, I imagine, are in that boat, your legacy is secure. Right? The rest is bonus. The rest is us participating in the, the joy and the life that Jesus has set in front of us. And those who have not, it's just not too late. It's not too late for you to choose Jesus. It's not too late. Continuing on to verse 2 in chapter 13, it says, The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. I think we all know, if you know the narrative, maybe you don't, Judas sells Jesus out. But I want to take this moment, because we'll talk about that more later, to just address the men in the room for just a second, of any age, all right? So men, just listen to me. Whether you are a dad now, 
or might be in the future, this passage should grab your attention. It should grab your attention. The man that we see here named Simon, which we know from this passage is Judas's father, is only mentioned in the Bible one time. And it's right here in this verse. He's mentioned as the father of the man who betrays Jesus. And this verse reminds me to seriously consider how well I am leading my children towards Jesus. If it were my name mentioned here, and I imagine you could put yourself in this scenario as well, and the reason that I was mentioned in the Bible was because my child betrayed Jesus, it would crush my soul. So fathers currently, fathers in the future, maybe your kids are grown, you're still a dad, please, whatever you do for the sake of your family, make every effort to raise your children to love and follow Jesus. It's not your choice whether they do or don't, but it is your choice how you lead them towards their own choice. And do not sell your leadership short. Moms and dads have the greatest chance to influence their children for good or for bad, and the choice really is yours. And if you feel stuck in a situation, maybe you're there and you're like, I don't know what to do. If you feel stuck, you have resources. You have people at Center Church who want to help you and love on you and work with you in those situations. But most importantly, you have the God of the universe who revealed his character to us through Scripture, through Scripture, to help you navigate the hard things like parenting. That is a really hard thing. Last week, we observed Jesus being troubled by a situation. And, and, and the more that I am a father, the longer that I am a father, the more I realize that very few things bring me trouble like being a dad. <laughs> right? Whether it's their fault or my fault, doesn't matter. There are, there are very few situations that cause me to consider the weight of life as being a dad has. So I can relate to Jesus when I feel troubled. And so I take his model. What did he do in that situation? He elevated his godly convictions over his personal preference. He sacrificed for those that he loved. And we are offered the same choice. So again, dads, your kids need your fatherly presence and leadership. Far more than they need more stuff and more experiences. Do not trade the temporary things of this world for a chance to influence them for eternity. Please. Let's continue on with verse three. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. So we we meet two 
different types of people in this, in this story so far. And uh, they both need Jesus equally badly, right? They, they both need Jesus. So we, we meet Judas and we meet Peter. And Judas is trying really hard to get it wrong, and he does. Whereas Peter is trying really hard to get it right, and he gets it wrong. Like They both get it wrong. They both need Jesus, but they're trying from a different perspective. Judas gets it, gets it wrong because as we observe and as we have talked about already, he sells Jesus out for a very small amount of money. In fact, he's been robbing the ministry of Jesus ever since he came on board. This is not a, a momentary slip-up. This was a plan. He gets it wrong. He's been trying hard to get it wrong. But Peter gets it wrong because he thinks doing right and pretending to be humble will give him favor with the Lord. He basically says, you, you can't wash my feet, Jesus. I will never allow that. And, and I'm so humble that you should never serve me. But Jesus equates that washing the feet, the act that he's doing is essentially like cleansing their soul. And so at least he corrects himself and he says, Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then Simon rightfully responds, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. He has no filter. You ever met anybody that has no filter? Peter has no filter, right? Some of, if you didn't raise your hand, you might be either next to a person who doesn't have a filter, or you might be that person. I'm just saying, but that might be you. Anyway, Peter has no filter, and it often leads him down to this path of false humility or just downright pride, right? But humility really is a funny thing because we are told to strive for it, right? You hear that all the time. Just stay humble, right? You, you, but the funny thing is, is we, we have such a different perspective of humility than Jesus did. And actually trying to gain humility itself by efforting to be humble almost never works. I say almost because I'm sure there's a scenario where it may have, but I haven't figured it out yet. I was listening to a, a, a man, I was listening to John Piper, he's a pastor, theologian, uh, much smarter than I, and he said this about humility, I wanted to share with you, he said, humility is not something we pursue but a reflex we have. It's not something we pursue, but a reflex we have. Tim Keller says, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You cannot intentionally seek out humility because the effect is you turn your thoughts inward. And that's the opposite of what should be happening. Instead, humility becomes a reflex. When we pursue something greater than ourselves, when we turn our thoughts outward and we seek the well-being of others around us, it happens when we seek Jesus. So both of these men demonstrate what seems to be a universal truth that the biggest stumbling block to humility and progress and success and even joy is ourselves. We are our own stumbling block to all of those things. Can you relate to that? In fact, I'm going to double down on this. If you were to keep track on or keep track of the things that frustrate you, okay, I want you to do this. Just take inventory this week of the things that frustrate you. I would bet that they almost all stem from the fact that you think life is about you, <laughs> right? And when you, when you do the inverse, right, when you do the opposite, we find that Life is more refreshing. So whether it's greed like Judas or pride like Peter or something else, another sin altogether, we are our own greatest barrier to the life Jesus 
has set in front of us. But the answer lies in this next passage, right? I I really believe that this is such a powerful passage because of what we're about to read. So let's read it. Verse 12 through 17 in John 13 says, "When When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Right? So we had Mary, Jesus' mom, say, do what Jesus says. And now Jesus is saying, do what Jesus says, right? He says, do what I have done for you. We see Jesus taking on this posture of servant. Him washing the feet of his disciples was borderline crazy for them to observe. Like, we, we just think, I mean, I don't even know. If you, if you have, have ever washed someone else's feet and you're not doing it as your job, like a you know, if you're like not in doing pedicures or if you haven't done some like weird youth group exercise where they do this, right? Some of us can relate to both of those. But if you just were like, I want to wash your feet, you would, that would just be weird. And it was equally weird, especially because Jesus in their eyes was the Messiah, is the Messiah. And so they're like, this is no, this is a task for the slaves and for the servants. Why are you doing this? And I imagine that they felt, um, a lot of tenseness, like they were really tense as they started to watch this really awkward interaction. Have you ever seen something just really awkward and as it plays out, your body just starts to like, like get really tense or just anything that makes you nervous? Have you ever felt that? It happened to me just this week and it was so random. I was in the gopher hole that is YouTube, right? Just keep clicking on the next video and you know, pretty soon you're 75 minutes later and wasted all your life. But I was doing that. And, uh, and there was this video of waves, like giant waves that have been captured on video, crashing over buildings, crashing over people, crashing over major ships, right? And, and, and I'm watching this happen, and, and, and I get done, it was like eight minutes long, and I get done, and I realize I was like just strangling the remote, and like super tense, and I was like, it's okay, Rick, you're in the safety of your own home right now. Like, there's no waves going to crash over you, right? Like, if you've ever felt that sensation, that's how it must have felt for them. They were so, it would have been so awkward for them. Why is Jesus doing this? It was really crazy for him, and yet, he does it. And when he does it, not only does he say that I have done this for you, but he says, now you go and do it for everyone else. As followers of Jesus, we are called to crazy levels of service. And if you've ever served somebody without, you know, like, they're like, what's your angle? Right? You know, if you've ever done something nice for somebody just because they're like, they don't trust you at first, right? So you got to kind of do it more and more and more, right? That's, that's, that's what Jesus says that we're going to do. And he says it because he says that this is how you will lead people, You will lead them by serving them. You will lead them by serving them. He says it also in Matthew 20. It says in verse 25, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles 
lord it over them. We all know those people, right? They, they just think they're better than you and act like it, right? But he says, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as ransom for many. We see it again in Ephesians 5. Jesus is talking about husbands and wives in reference to the church. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The moral of the story is we serve those that we wish to lead. We serve those that we wish to influence. Culturally, it's just as crazy today as it was for them back then. It's just as crazy to have that mindset, to serve from a position of authority just didn't make sense to them. It doesn't make sense to us today, and yet it's the thing that Jesus is modeling and telling us to go and do. When I was finishing my master's degree uh, of about five or six years back, I did a lot of research on servant leadership. And it's only been a valid form of leadership, like only like even been recognized as actual leadership for 20 to 30 years in American culture. And it's rarely applied outside of nonprofits and faith-based organizations, right? We just don't see it as this thing. And yet, my research concluded that, that Jesus really was the original servant leader. So while it's only been valid for 20 to 30 years in the minds of people, Jesus actually modeled and told us to do that. So it's been alive for thousands of years. And even though he had the highest positional authority, right? It says all power was given to him. He had the highest positional authority and increasing relational authority. He chose to lead others through serving them. Now I get it. This is not sexy, right? You're like, serving? What? They come to hear about this? But really, what Jesus is saying, dude, this is how you're going to influence the world. This is how you're going to lead others towards me. Robert Greenleaf is known as the grandfather of servant leadership. So I guess Jesus is the great-grandfather of servant leadership. That was my assertion in my paper. But he says this as basically the measure or the mark of how you are serving people, how you are leading them through service. He asks these questions. Do those being served become more healthy, more autonomous, more capable of success at any given task? And eventually, do they become more likely to serve themselves? As we serve, we create other servants. As we lead them through that, they often follow and become servants themselves. Jesus did that. He modeled that. And then you look at the disciples, their journey and and, and their legacy, and it's clear that he took those, what I would call sloppy piles of clay, right? If you've ever like wet clay, and it's just gross and nasty, and he formed them into these beautiful jars that were able to carry his message, the living water of Jesus, forward into the remainder of history. Those men are responsible for church, including this church today, because of what Jesus put in them and what Jesus did for them. He served them, and that has carried on. So we're not motivated to serve because we have this like begrudging religious, like, pulling us against what we want to do, right? Like, oh, I'm going to serve. Uh. But rather, we're making an effort to be more like Jesus. When we serve, we do so because we want to be like the Savior who served us, 
the Savior who saved us. And I want you to just consider for one second, we're going to wrap up here in just a second, just a world where everyone makes an effort to serve their neighbor on a daily basis. Does that sound like a great place to be? It does. It sounds like a great place to live. And yet it's the thing that Jesus has been telling us to do all along. So I would challenge you to think in those terms, to think with that mindset. I'm gonna, I, wanna, I wanna wrap up with this, and uh, really if there was one thing that I want you to leave with, it's this. Um, hopefully you got more than one thing from the scripture today, but I want you to leave with this. Jesus, you know, it says that he had the basin and the, and the towel, and he, and he washed their feet, which again we've established was not a, was not a positional thing for him. I mean, he should not have been doing that. And yet he did, and then he says to go and do it. And I want to encourage you with this because uh, Jesus washes the disciples' feet as both, as both an effort to establish a precedence, but he also wants to give them a, an encouragement. He says in the scripture, in that passage we just talked about, he says, you are clean. You are clean. I think one of the hardest things about being a Christ follower today is recognizing and living as though Jesus has actually forgiven us. I say it's hard, not because we don't actually believe that he did it, but because we think we're beyond hope. We think there is just no way Jesus could actually forgive that without repercussions or consequences. Yes, there are consequences on earth, but not eternal consequences. It's really hard for us, but I believe it's even harder for us to see ourselves as Jesus sees us, and that is forgiven and clean. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus forgives us and cleanses us. He has wiped away condemnation, shame, guilt, all of the things that we internalize and carry. And he took his towel and he wiped it away. And he says, I don't see it anymore. Live life knowing that. Live your life internalizing that. I'm gonna invite the band up and we're gonna sing a song here in just a second that talks about the greatness of our God. And yes, God displayed many, many awesome things throughout the narrative of the Bible, including Jesus, right? The virgin birth and then death on a cross and resurrection and all of the miracles we've covered just in the gospel of John, the greatness of God. But I just want you to know this. There is no more great thing than what Jesus did for us on the cross. And it was made possible by his death and resurrection. If he had just died, that would be one thing. But since he was resurrected, he is who he says he is. And therefore, if he is who he says he is, then the things that he says are true. And so if he says that you're forgiven and clean, then it's true. That's good news. That's good news. And so I want you to stand with me. I'm going to pray for you. And what I'm going to pray for you today before we sing this song is that I'm going to pray that you really believe and know that if you follow Jesus, he has forgiven you and made you clean. I don't even have to prompt you to think about the thing that you think is making you not clean. 
we think about it too much. And yet Jesus says, you are forgiven and clean. And I want us to live like it. I want us to live underneath the banner of that because it's true. Because Jesus said it was. And you don't have to carry the weight of that anymore. You don't have to carry the shame of it anymore. The condemnation of it anymore. It's just not there if you're in Jesus. I want us to live like that. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. And God, the weight of the thing that we're carrying, Jesus served us in a way that has made us clean. He led us to a place of forgiveness and cleanliness and salvation and restoration and hope and joy. And all we have to do is receive it. So God, I pray that people would believe that, that they would actually live their life as they are forgiven and clean and redeemed, God. I pray a blessing over their hearts and their minds that the enemy would not lie to them anymore, that they would not buy in to the nonsense that tells them that they are not forgiven, that they are not clean, that they are not good enough, but that the God-given worth and value that God placed in each and every person was redeemed by Jesus on the cross and we get to live in that redemption. We get to live in that freedom today. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're gonna sing this song and I want you to sing your guts out because you have been forgiven and cleansed, okay? Let's sing